The following message is from Bear Creek Church. More information about BCC is available at bearcreekchurch.org. Oh, what a joy it is to worship the Lord together in song. And now we get to worship the Lord together by uh, going into his word together. I invite you now to open your Bibles to the book of First Peter. And as a reminder, if you don't have a Bible, please feel free to grab one off the back table. So we're going to open to uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. You know what? The, the method that Pastor Brian and I have been uh, doing when we come up here is, you know, Pastor Brian's been working his way through the book of Acts, and I have been working my way through the book of 1 Peter. And, you know, there's, there's pros and cons to that method of, of going through scripture. One of the, the cons, from my point of view, is you get to passages that, well, they're kind of hard. And by hard, I mean convicting. You might otherwise be tempted to just, eh, we'll just skip over that one. But I uh, can't always get away with that. So uh, if you're new, my name is, is Pastor Bill. So normally Pastor Brian is up here, but he is out of town uh, this weekend. But uh, he should be up here next week, Lord willing, but I get the pleasure of sharing with you today. Would you please pray with me? Father God, you are so good to us. You are so gracious and merciful. Help us to have attitudes now that are honoring to you. Help us to approach your word with humility. Help us to be open to conviction, to respond rightly to encouragement, and to direct our conduct in this time to bring honor and glory to your name. And it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Well, if you are able, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? So in 1 Peter 2, beginning with the verse 13, God's word says, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme, or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. This is God's word. You may be seated. I think it's a fair question to ask why is this text here? Why does Peter take the time to say this? Is this a continuation of what Peter has already been saying, or is this a transition to a new thought or a new point? Well, I think to really understand these verses and to understand why they are here, which will help us to understand how we apply them and what we do with them, we need to take a minute and consider how, these, how we got here. What has Peter said this far in the letter? 
Consider this summary of First Peter. We were chosen by God. We saw this in the beginning of the letter when we are referred to as elect exiles. In chapter 2, verse 9, says that we are chosen, a chosen race. We were ransomed by the blood of Christ. We see in verse 18 and 19 of chapter 1, where it says, knowing that we were ransomed from feudal ways, not with perishable things, but with the precious blood of Christ. We were born again and brought out of darkness into light. So Peter says that God caused us to be born again in verse 3. And then in verse 23, he says, since you have been born again, and that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We have been given fire-tested faith, an inexpressible joy in our living hope. Our faith has been strengthened. And the more it is strengthened, the more we love him, have joy in him, trust him, and have our hope in him. The Spirit is sanctifying us as aliens and exiles on earth. Do we have slides up? We're working on it. This would be a lot better if there were slides. But There we go. So, the Spirit is sanctifying us as aliens and exiles on earth. So, if you have not been born again, then this, this world, well, this is your home. This is as good as it gets. There is no heaven for you unless you come to Christ. But if you have been born again, then at that point, you're an exile. My king is not a person on earth. It's Jesus in heaven. From these passions, we were called to be holy and to love each other. We are called to be holy as he is holy. We are to be holy in all our conduct, including how we treat and love one another. And in this way, lead the Gentiles to the glory of God and to glorify God. Excuse me. So we see here that Peter's audience as well as us today, we're now in this place to say, you know, at, at one point, this, this world was my home, but not any longer. We are chosen. We are a chosen race. We are set apart. This is not my home. Therefore, I'm now an exile here. I'm a foreigner, a sojourner. So now what? So what does this mean? What does this look like? Where do we fit in the world and how do we respond? This world is not our home because our home is in heaven. And how do we respond to earthly authority? Verse 12 says to keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Keep your conduct honorable so that when they call you evil, when they speak evil against you, our prayer, our hope is not that the worst parts of ourselves come out, but that they may see our good deeds and glorify God. 
Our desire should be that those who are, who are unbelievers would one day submit to Christ and follow him. This is a key to our having a right understanding of our passage this morning. So Peter is saying that now that you are born again, now that you are in Christ, you are set apart. You're different. You are in exile in this world because this world is not your home. So how do we live? How should we act? Now, Peter is not saying that this world doesn't matter. No, verse 12 is saying that we want our conduct to glorify God, that the unbelievers in the world would see our conduct and one day glorify God. So this world matters, and our conduct in it matters. What we see here in our text in 1 Peter, and really throughout much of the rest of 1 Peter, is an unpacking of this. What does this look like now as, as citizens, as workers, as wives and husbands, as church members? How do we live a life of conduct that is honorable, that instead of speaking against you, they would glorify God? We remember what it says in chapter 1. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who calls you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So what does holiness look like in the practical day-to-day life of a Christian? Now, I want to look at our text this morning in two chunks. I want us to look at verses 13 and 14, and then we'll look at verses 15 through 17. I say this because I think when we read this passage, our minds tend to focus on verses 13 and 14. Yet I think the key to this passage is actually in 15 through 17. We tend to focus on 13 and 14 in part, if we're honest, because we don't like it. We may be uncomfortable with this. Now, I think if you watch the news or follow current events, you might see that our culture is undergoing a crisis of authority. This has led people to an almost wholesale rejection of claims of authority. We tend to be leery of any authority. We have trust issues. We see this play out in the way that people tend to reject the admonitions of leaders, whether it be the government or work or in the church. And to be fair, in some cases, various authorities have brought on this rejection themselves by offering poor leadership and by abusing those whom they supervise. Yet this is not true in every case. And even many good and faithful authorities are rejected simply because, well, they are an authority. We live in a culture that hates authority. And we have all been affected by this disdain for authority in one way or another. You know, we pridefully can think that we don't need to be led. Or that we know better than those who are to lead us. And sometimes that may be true. But it doesn't change the fact that our sovereign Lord has placed people in authority over us. And Peter is telling us what our response should be and why. So let's look at our text, verses 13 through 14. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. 
So when I said that we don't like it, what do I mean? We tend to read this and we see that we are to submit to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor, to governors, to the government. And we don't like that. God has called Christians out of the world in order to serve him as his ambassadors, as his priests, declaring and displaying his rule so that those around us might, as we saw last time, come to glorify God on the day of visitation. But at the same time, we are to be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. So the word translated institution is literally creature. But institution is a good translation because Peter is not telling his readers that they are to submit to every person created by God. In fact, Peter is making a nuanced and crucial point about the nature of authority. In his day, the Roman emperor, the authority, was an object of worship. And Peter is clear, the emperor is not divine, so he is not to be worshipped. No earthly ruler is to be worshipped. Now, we may not bow down and worship our leaders today, but we may be guilty of putting some of them on such a pedestal that it looks similar to the watching world. So we, we may not like this when we think about government. This is to say we are, you know, we're okay with it as long as we agree with their leading or their ruling. But we have a problem when we don't like it or when we disagree. Which, as we'll see as we continue on in First Peter, this is true any time we are called to submit. You know, submission is easy when it's not work. It's an interesting thing to look at the political landscape in the United States. And considering this passage, I spent some time looking back at the last several presidential elections. Some of you may remember this, but in 1980, Ronald Reagan won the election over Jimmy Carter with 489 electoral votes to 49. Then in 1984, Ronald Reagan ran against Walter Mondale and won 49 out of 50 states. And no, Oregon was not the one that he lost. That distinction goes to Minnesota. Washington, D.C. also went to Mondale. So in 1984, President Reagan received a record 525 electoral votes compared to 13 votes for Mondale. In 1988, George H.W. Bush, who was the vice president of President Reagan, ran against Michael Dukakis. President Bush won with 426 electoral votes. Then in 1992, George Bush lost to Bill Clinton. Bill Clinton had 370 electoral votes to 168 for George Bush. This election was famous for the addition of Ross Perot as an independent in the race. In 1996, President Clinton won 379 electoral votes against Bob Dole. When President Reagan was president, the country was very united. With President Bush, then President Clinton, we saw that to be less and less true. Then in 2000, it was former President Bush's son, George W. Bush, against the former vice president under Bill Clinton, Al Gore. This was a very close race that President Bush won with 271 electoral votes compared to 266 for Al Gore. This was the infamous hanging Chad election. 
Al Gore actually received more of the popular vote, showing just how divided the country was at that time. A year later was September 11th, and for a time, the country was united again. Then in 2004, President Bush won again with 286 electoral votes compared to 251 for John Kerry. This was followed by President Barack Obama, who was president from 2008 to 2016 by defe defeating John McCain in 2008 and Mitt Romney in 2012. Then President Donald Trump from 2016 to 2020 after defeating Hillary Clinton, the wife of former President Clinton. To our current president, President Joe Biden in 2020 after defeating President Trump. So for the past 20 years, the country has been increasingly divided when it comes to politics, and people seem less and less likely to agree to disagree when it comes to political issues. We seem to not just disagree with or dislike the person we didn't vote for, but we see them as evil or at the very least scary. The pendulum has swung so much over the past 20 years that some people go back and forth from being angry to happy about who is in office. As proof, probably for many of you, as I said various names, some of you probably cringed or cheered inside depending on the name and your personal views. So what should our attitude be to these leaders? Not just the president, but any of our leaders. Peter gives us some insight here in our passage. So first of all, notice that it says, be subject. Other translations were this, submit yourselves. So first, we must not wait to be coerced into submission. Submission is something that we are to initiate and are responsible to do. We are to put ourselves into submission. We are to submit voluntarily as those who are free in Christ, our text says. We submit to authority for the Lord's sake. For the Lord's sake. Why do we submit? We submit for the Lord's sake because the people we submit to are not necessarily deserving or good, but to point people to Christ. We are willing to die to ourselves to point to Christ. We submit in part because it's not their rule that we fear. We are to fear God, and because this world is not our home, we are free to do so. Submission here does not mean that we, that we lie or, and say that we agree with things that we don't. It can be permissible to voice your opinion, opinion. And certainly we live in a country with elections, so we should vote. But there should be an attitude of respect. And I confess that I struggle with that part in times. What Peter is saying here is that we're not just submitting for the sake of submission, but it is for the Lord's sake. It is that by your attitude, by your obedience, by your doing good, others might come to know Christ. We are being called to have a heavenly mindset that thinks on this with heaven as our home in mind. In other words, at the end of the day, well, it's not about you. It's all about Jesus. It says every human institution. This can mean any human creation. It says every human institution. In this, we are talking about government, but it's not limited to government. 
Peter says that we are to submit to every ordinance of man, but that has to be qualified. We're to do so unless those ordinances prohibit us from doing what God commands or command us to do what God forbids. Then not only may we, be, may we not be submissive, but we must not submit. Peter is speaking in general terms here. What is important to note is why Peter comes to this conclusion. He tells us to submit to to authorities for the Lord's sake. Not for your sake or for my sake, but for the Lord's sake. To understand this, we have to see the scope of the biblical concept of obedience and submission and authority. The universe in which we live is not a democracy. God does not rule by public vote, contrary to the way some of us pray at times. I heard R.C. Sproul once say, the Ten Commandments are not ten suggestions. There is an order of authority in the universe, and at the top of that structure is God, who reigns and rules. He has delegated all authority in heaven and earth to his Son, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. So at the top of this hierarchical structure of the universe is Christ. Nero, who was the king when this epistle was written, was under the authority of Jesus, but he would not submit to Jesus as he did not recognize Jesus as his authority. Our text says emperor as supreme. Our human disposition should be that we see like it says in Philippians 2.3, where it says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. In humility, we are to count others more significant than ourselves. Not because they've earned it. Not because they've done all these great things. But that my default position as a Christian in any interaction is I'm here to serve you. Scripturally, that's what we're called to do. So when Peter is saying the emperor as supreme, Peter is saying about the emperor, that's how you're to treat him as well. In Peter's day, as the gospel spread and pagans converted to Christianity, several charges arose against the early church. Pagan misunderstandings of the Lord's Supper, for example, led to claims that the first Christians practiced cannibalism. Ignorance was behind many of these claims, just as ignorance is still behind many attacks on the Christian faith today. The church has no recourse but to deal with such ignorance. So our passage shows us that one way we can answer our misinformed critics is to live exemplary lives of submission to human authorities. It is by our subjection to our rulers as good citizens that we can silence many of the ignorant charges against us. It does not say to to blast them in the public square to show their ignorance. But we are to be holy as our Father in heaven is holy. One of the things that this text does is, is put all of our social and political life into relation to God. The Bible is not a book about how to get along in the world. It is a book inspired by God about how to live for God. Or to say it the way that Paul says it in Galatians, live to God. 
The aim of life, including our social and political life, is to live to God. To live with God in view, to live under His authority, to live dependent on Him, to live for His good reputation. We live as people who are free. We don't submit because they are our master. Our master is God, who is also above them. We are free, so we submit for the Lord's sake. Now, just to be clear, is there ever a time to disobey? Yes. Are there areas that are beyond their authority? I believe so. If we are being called to sin, to disobey what God has said to do or not to do, we are to disobey. In my opinion, Corey Tenboom is a wonderful example of this. It is important to remember that we may not always agree with the choices of others when they disobey authorities. We may think that a particular area was not a warranted reason to disobey. I listened to a story from a well-known pastor who talked about in the early 1980s, he was involved in several protests over abortion. As a result, he was arrested several times. Some people felt that it was wrong for him to protest to a level that led to his arrest, as a Christian and especially as a pastor. Well, he disagreed that it was wrong, but also said that he recognized that different people might have a different view, and just because he didn't think it was wrong for him, that he would stop short of saying, therefore, it would not be wrong for anyone, or that everyone else should have been there too. We pray about it and bring it before the Lord. And what convictions does that put on our hearts? God does not necessarily call everyone to have the same convictions over every topic in terms of action and what we should do. In other words, to use that same example, we as Christians can and should all agree that abortion is wrong. But that does not necessarily mean that we will all be convicted to act out our disagreement in the same way. Some of us are gifted in different ways. So back to our text. Peter is saying that we are to submit to our authorities. Interestingly, Peter gave this admonition to a body of believers who were enduring a great deal of suffering. Suffering at the hands of authorities and others in their culture. These individuals had to endure much injustice. But Peter called them to obey, even when they were being treated unjustly. They were to obey for the Lord's sake. Remembering what, it, what Paul says in Romans, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. God placed these authorities over them. And obeying them is part of what it means to obey the Lord. The same admonition applies to us today. Unjust treatment in itself does not necessarily mean that we can disobey the authorities that God has placed over us. At the same time, God calls us to render absolute, unquestioning submission only to him. No authority may assume the place of God and demand that we break his commandments. When an authority commands us to do something that God forbids or forbids us to do something that God commands, we may, indeed, we must disobey the authority. But generally speaking, disobedience should be the exception. 
We are called to go out of our way to obey those whom God has set over us. And we should not be looking for ways to justify unlawful disobedience. That we must obey earthly authorities unless they command us to do something that God forbids or forbids us to do something that God commands is an easy principle to memorize. But it's hard to apply. Before we disobey a lawful authority, we must carefully discern whether disobedience is actually required by the law of God. We do this by studying God's word, praying for wisdom, and consulting with other believers. So this is where we get to what I think is the key to this passage. We have the free submission. We are free. This world is not our home, so how do we act? Our passage says in verses 15 through 17, For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. So doing good. We submit by being good citizens. Freedom in Christ is not a freedom to sin. Neither is freedom in Christ a freedom from responsibility. And our responsibility to governing authorities is not merely to do no harm. Our responsibility is actually to do good. Doing good describes a general, generous posture toward others that shows itself in how we act toward them. In other words, in any given situation, we are to seek the welfare of others. Live as people who are free. Peter anticipated that some of his readers would object that the demand of submission to human rulers invalidates the principle of the freedom that believers have in Christ. To this, Peter replies with verse 16, Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. We are free. We are free from sin, from the law, and from death. But that is no excuse for insubordination. The Christian is free from sin, but is a slave to God. Romans 6 says, But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end eternal life. There are many ways to abuse our freedom. But we must use our freedom correctly to love neighbors and to serve God. He brought us out of slavery for something more than self-indulgence. We are to live as people who are free. So, I'm paying my taxes. I I'm keeping the speed limit. I am submitting because I am free, and God has, ca- has called me to render to Caesar at this point. We are not citizens here, so, you know, so we obey for the Lord's sake. We obey the speed limit for the Lord's sake. It is not freedom to thumb your nose and disrespectfully say, Ah, I don't have to listen to you. That's bondage. That's bondage to our own sinful desires. That is using our freedom as a cover-up for evil. 
As Christians, we possess a freedom that non-believers cannot enjoy. If we are in Christ, then we are free from the curse of the law. That the, sorry, we are free from the curse that the law brings to the disobedient. And we are free from the reigning power of sin over our lives. Consider for a moment what we see in the book of Matthew in chapter 17. This is Peter here, where it says, When they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax, tax went up and Peter, to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the tax? He said, Yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And when he said, from others, Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. So this is not sedition. This is not so we don't have to pay the tax. Jesus was instructing Peter to pay the tax. Now, if you're thinking, oh man, I've been going about paying my taxes all wrong. I should start doing that. You should probably know that a shekel was equivalent to about $20 today. So you might have to open the mouths of several fish before you get enough. But remember that wording, the sons are free. We are free. We are tempted to think, well, you know, if the president is not my master, if the governor is not my master, if I am free, I, I can do whatever I want. I don't have to live by these rules. I have diplomatic immunity. I can speed if I want to. I can take things if I want to. I don't have to pay my taxes. After all, I don't like the, what they're doing with the money anyway. But hold on. See what it says in verse 16. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. God knows our hearts. So he is saying, you are free, but don't use your freedom for evil, but living as servants of God. Remember what we talked about with verse 12. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So we are being challenged to have a larger view, a larger perspective. Not just focus on the now, the next few minutes or days or months, but to have an eternal perspective. It's possible when we have an eternal perspective that we then understand that while here on earth for a little while, we may have to deal with some unfairness. Peter is describing an attitude of the heart here, living as servants of God. We are servants of God. We are not servants of human institutions. Do we live this way? Do people see that in our conduct? Do they see that in our response to current events? As servants of God, do we live in submission to him? This might mean that even though 
your boss at work is hard and treats you unfairly, you still show up and work hard and do a good job. You don't give in to the temptation to gossip and slander. When it comes to governing authorities, are we undone when politics don't go the way that we think they should? Do we pray for our leaders? Not just that they would lead the way that we think that they should, but that they would come to know Christ. Honor everyone. Now, there's a lot of people that fall under that umbrella term of everyone. Human beings bear God's image, so they are to be honored. To honor someone is to treat them as valuable, as a person of worth. We treat others with the dignity, dignity due to them as God's creatures. So not only are we good citizens, we are also to go beyond the normal duties that we owe society. We must honor everyone. Not only must we be submissive to the laws of the land, insofar as they don't require us to sin, we must show respect to people, even if they're not in authority over us, even if they have wronged us. We must treat everyone with the dignity they possess in bearing the image of God. Our text says, love the brotherhood. Then over and above this honoring, there's a special bond among believers. We are to love the brotherhood. Peter will have more to say about what brotherly love looks like in chapter 4. But for today, the additional emphasis here is, I, I think, in part, because this can be a tough topic. We may not always agree on this and how we do this. And so Peter is reminding us to love each other as the family that we are. Fear God. We obey the authorities. But we are not in awe of them. We are in awe of God. God is who, is who we serve. So we are in awe of him and, and who he is and who we are not. Fear is just another word for worship or adoration. Proverbs says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's having a reverence of God. As R.C. Sproul has said, the greatest need of any human being, believer or unbeliever, is to know God. Until you know the fullness of God, you don't know what it means to fear God fully. The ability to fear God correlates to how much you know about him. The more you have consumed the wisdom and revelation of God's character found in Holy Scripture, the more glorious he becomes to you. The more you see his beauty, the more you will have awe and fear and worship him. Honor the emperor. So Peter says to these readers, even, even the emperor, who stood at the head of a government increasingly opposed to the church, is to be honored. As a creature made in God's image and an authority placed over them by God's will. So if these Christians should and could speak about and treat the emperor with respect, then there is no excuse for us not doing so when it comes to our political leaders today. I can do nothing with selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility 
count others more significant than yourselves. Christians are free in Christ. But we are not to use our liberty as a license for sin. Because even though, on the one hand, we are free, on the other hand, we remain indentured servants. We are bond servants to God. We are slaves to Jesus Christ. So even if the rest of the world is running on the track of anti-authority, anti-submissiveness, we are not allowed to join in. We are called to be meticulous to maintain order. There is such a thing as law and order that God himself has ordained in the universe. We are called to bear witness to that. Even by suffering through uncomfortable, inconvenient, and sometimes painful submission to the lawful rules of even those authorities who do not recognize God. For even the godless authorities have been established by God. Almost any government is better than no government. But we await a heavenly government that is better than all earthly governments. We are looking for the revelation of Christ when he will come and finally establish his righteous government on the new earth. Until then, we are to submit to those he has placed over us for our good. And even if what they do is not good, our sovereign Lord knows what he is doing. Just as he wastes no suffering, he also doesn't waste any government appointments. We may, not understand, we may not understand why a particular person is in power, but we can rest assured that our king does. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you this morning confessing that we at times have had our confidence be in the wrong things. Whether that be governmental leaders or potential leaders or our own achievements. We have acted as though that is what we need. We confess that we don't always fear you and serve you as we should. Lord God, help us. Help us to be more and more in awe of you. Help us to be obedient to those in authority over us. Help us to conduct ourselves in a way that is honoring to you. Help us to point others to you with our actions. Lord, we do pray for our leaders. We pray that those who do not know you, who do not confess their need for a Savior and call out to you, that you would convict them of their sin that they would submit to you and worship you, that they would then have the courage to make decisions with a biblical mindset. Lord, passages like this can be hard for us. We can resist this call to submit to our authorities. We ask for wisdom in the areas that we should not submit. We ask for courage to act in humility when that is how we are called by you to respond. You are our King, and we praise you. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.